0: Talking, it, talk it, their movies, talk it, talking it, talk their movies, talk it, talking it, talk their movies, talk it, talk it, talk their movies, but tell me shut up, I do what I want, I talk what I want. Oh yeah, but tell me shut up, I do what I want, I talk what I want. I do it a one. Do it a one. Do it a one. Bada boom, bada bing party, people, and welcome to another edition of Talking During Movies, the podcast where we take key moments and quotes from a film to drive a conversation. And today we've got a mix of artistry, thriller, insight, greatness in film, and also the perfect person to parlay along with it. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the often copied, never duplicated King of the Ring with the man who's got more books behind him than you do. I can guarantee that Mr. David Page, how are you, sir?
1: I could not be better. Um, That was quite the introduction.
0: Well, if in case you won that $700 million and you needed a hype, man, I'm always, you know, looking for a little, okay, good.
1: It's a deal. It's a deal.
0: (laughs) David, how can uh, people find you on uh, the socials? Tell them a little bit about yourself and and life in general, what's going on, brother?
1: Okay. Well, they can, uh, they can find me, uh, at food Americana on Facebook, food Americana on Instagram. Um, tell me, uh, tell you a little bit about myself. Okay. I've been a journalist for 50 years, literally, uh, spent most of that, t- <laughs> literally, I'm old, <laughs> spent most of that time in television news, including lengthy stints with NBC News and ABC News. For NBC, I spent a lot of time overseas. I was posted in London then Frankfurt and Budapest uh whence i covered the uh fall of communism uh when that happened walked through the berlin wall the night it opened when i got back to the states i uh worked as a show producer at abc and then moved on to my own production company where eventually i created a show a little thing called diners drive-ins and dives executive produced it for the first 11 seasons of its run it's Now I understand in something like season 30, whatever. (laughs) And most recently, I've turned to writing books. My first book, Food Americana, came out not that long ago. It's about my quest to determine what is American cuisine. Wow. Uh, Yeah, because, you know, people think they know what French cuisine is or Italian cuisine. And in fact, that's a bit of a misnomer because there are different regional cuisines in all European countries, uh, including those. But you ask someone, what is American cuisine? And the answer is, I don't know, fast food. In fact, that's not it. American cuisine, in, in my opinion, is composed of foods of other countries and cultures that we came to for the most part via immigration and adopted and changed Mm -hmm. um mexican-american is not uh, any of mexico's regional cuisines italian-american is not the food you'll find in italy they are cuisines of their own that were created by us uh to suit our palates and to make use of ingredients that we have here and they're perfectly valid as cuisines there there's nothing wrong with you know you go to a Chinese restaurant and and somebody says to you well that's not authentic authentic to what (laughs) it's authentic Chinese American food meantime in China uh cuisine evolves as well one of the most popular dishes there right now is scrambled eggs and tomatoes so define authenticity
0: Wow, I love it. Now, before we, because I want to go down this with you real quick, but before we do that, we exchange some emails, as I always do with, with uh, guests. Vertigo is one of the movies. What is it about Vertigo that rings true to you or that you really enjoy or that has a special place in your heart? It,
1: it holds up despite all of the contrivances of movie making in its day woman jumps into san francisco bay and somehow comes out with her high heels still on you know that that kind of the perfect um uh, uh, photo lighting uh on on um kim novak as it was on all of hitchcock's blonde female stars because mm-hmm. I think the dark side of Hitchcock was that he kind of had a thing for those women. Um, and I have a dog, so who wants that? All it? good. Hold on Buffy. We're talking about, uh, vertigo. Um, also it's groundbreaking use of such a broad color palette and the, the brilliance with which Hitchcock tells a story, for example, uh, his economy. You have, jimmy stewart hanging off the edge of a roof now in almost every movie you see him being rescued in this movie you just cut to him afterwards and the audience has to assume he got rescued he he does that in a number of places where he doesn't waste exposition and mm-hmm. he just takes the story to the next step um obviously it's always a delight to watch jimmy stewart and this uh of all of his movies and he made so many great movies is such a good story it just it's like Casablanca which is another one on my list you can put it on today and you know what's going to happen you know you know the ending and you're still just riveted by the damn thing you know and of course the technical achievements in inventing what is now called the the vertigo zoom, Mm -hmm. which is dollying in one direction and zooming in the other at the same time, so that the center of the frame remains um, where it was, but the entire background around it um, changes in a way that could give you vertigo. I mean, there were so many, um, so many Hitchcockian developments along the way, but this one, you know, it's called the vertigo zoom in Hollywood, where it's still used to this day. That's a pretty remarkable achievement in and of itself, and you know it's funny there are things that you accept for their time period if that scary, scary scary score were to be used in a movie today, it would feel cheesy, but mm-hmm. somehow, in this film, it's just perfect from the very beginning I mean over the credits it's it's like that old sc tv bit where where the the show host looks up in the middle of the movie and says ooh scary boys and girls <laughs> the thing is it worked um you know hitchcock was a genius and this is a movie you can watch over and over and over again and enjoy and and in the final analysis i'm one of those self-professed movie critics who believes that movies should be enjoyable I, i'm People will yell at me, but I'm not a huge fan of walking away from a Bergman film feeling like I want to slip my wrists. (laughs) I
0: love it. All right, I'm going to hit play here. it will be playing on mute in the background as we keep talking. Now, I want to, you started off in the news. I've, you know, I've worked, uh, I've had the privilege to work with a lot of news people. And one of the things I've noticed in my 25 years of working with news people is those who have really experienced news is going to really like traveled, gone, seen great things, seen horrific things and everything in between. They don't live in the state of hyperbole that I think news lives in today.
1: Yeah. Um, look, this is not the news business that I was in. <laughs> um, I, I was in. In fact, I'll go to the end of the story and then back up. I was line producing Good Morning America. There, there were three line producers. And every third week, the show was yours, subject, of course, to the sign-off of the executive producer. And I I very much remember the day that she came up to me and she said, there's going to be a million-dollar winner on The Millionaire tonight. This was when The Millionaire was big. And um, he's booked for tomorrow morning in the 7 o'clock hour. Well, I knew right then and there the business had changed in a way that I just could not except and shortly thereafter I moved on in my day uh there were there were carefully enforced standards about things as basic as grammar Mm -hmm. people worked a long time to get to the network you worked your way up the correspondents were older um over the years as news became a significant profit center for the networks uh some things changed number one in uh I'm still feeding the dog it's all in good. uh in, in search of maximizing profits there was a slimming down the number of foreign bureaus was cut back uh people like the famous Gil Milstein who was the NBC News um grammar and style editor and you couldn't get anything on without Gil signing off Those positions were eliminated, and following the advice, I think, of broadcast consultants who screwed up local news in many cases, the networks have gone to much younger correspondents who simply don't have the life experience in the field to know what the hell they're talking about. Additionally, the creation of KU satellite technology back in the 80s began an inexorable shift to hands-off news coverage, where when I was in the Chicago Bureau for NBC back in 82, uh, early in the morning, the news director would walk up to you and say, uh, the bureau chief, go to Meg's, you're going to Iowa. Meg's <laughs> field, you'd get in a jet. you'd fly to Iowa, you'd cover the story, you'd feed it, you'd fly home. These days, there's no need to go to Iowa to get pictures because they come in by satellite. And the difference between network and local coverage back in my day was that we were really good when we smelled a story on the ground we could we could follow it and sniff it out i remember once during an auto strike we were feeding our stories from wda DIV in detroit a very good tv station and one of their reporters came up to my correspondent jim cummins the late and great jim cummins and asked him how the hell do you parachute in here and get more in your story than I get in mine when I live here. Um, over time, the the quality and the standards of, of news coverage have fallen. Now, let me be clear about one thing. This isn't fake news. Um, it, it's not like they're making stuff up or they're employing an agenda. What they are doing, and I'm afraid that people misunderstand And what they think is bias in the real world is simply ineptitude. And there is a a great degree of ineptitude now Mm -hmm. at major broadcast networks. That ineptitude does not, for the most part, apply to a handful of excellent newspapers, like the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, the Washington Post. I know people will argue that they have a bias this way or that um I think to a great extent by story selection the New York Times shows a liberal bias but not in the way they cover each individual story and, and they're not perfect I mean I just read a piece criticizing their breathless coverage of division within the Democratic Party and I think it's a fair criticism but again uh, I think what it's reflecting is a critique of how a well-intentioned reporter does his or her job, as opposed to, um, you know, what what people who watch Fox think happens, which is that a cabal of editors at the New York Times gets together and says, "Let's really screw these people." That, that's that's not the case.
0: Yeah, no, I, I agree with your take. I think there is a uh, a growing ineptitude, and and I and I don't think it's. I don't think it's ill will to, to your point. It's lack of experience. It's lack of understanding. It's, it's lack of. Doing and, nothing and so,
1: Yeah, so much of it is ownership. I mean, the Cox Media Group um, was at one point perhaps the most respected or certainly among the most respected local group media owners. Mm-hmm. And they sold out. I'm not sure if they sold the whole group or just some of their stations. But for example, WSB in Atlanta, which used to be a terrific TV station, I know because I competed against them at a local there and they were really good. Um, they're now owned by, um, I'm trying to remember the name, but, but one of these um, venture capitalist brands. And venture capitalists see a great opportunity to come into local TV stations and strip their assets to to fire a bunch of reporters and to pay nothing to the ones that remain because they're looking at local television as nothing more than a profit-making opportunity and you know i'm and in my mind this goes beyond news i am a believer that um a successful democracy requires powerful institutions and that doesn't just mean tv stations it means walmart um requires that they they have um a belief that they have a social responsibility to the people of the country I, I mean Walmart's well aware that uh, a majority of their employees are not food stamps or or get some sort of I'm not sure it's a majority but a substantial portion of their employees are paid so little that re- they rely on government benefits well so i'm paying the salaries in my taxes of walmart's um desire to make insane profits uh i think i think the news business um certainly needs to be um solvent Mm -hmm. and that's a crisis in and of itself
0: but isn't that real quick on the solvency real quick and i I wanted to ask you this because this is what i don't understand mm -hmm. more and more people have access to news mm-hmm. and information than ever before. Mm-hmm. And easy access. Mm-hmm. And profits are coming down more and more while the expenditure to release news is coming down more and more. It's well, it's almost like the same way the government runs healthcare or the way they balance a budget, you've got the same person at the head of the news station going, I didn't pass math, but I've got a well, budget for us that's gonna well, knock your of socks the thing, off.
1: One of the things you have in the news business. Um, that's a real problem, is um, the internet. The fact of the matter is, unless you have adopted your print product to some kind of profitability as an internet first product, you're screwed. Number two, um, newspapers used to make a lot of money off legal advertising, the stuff that has to be published by government orders so-and-so got a deed here so-and-so was married whatever my understanding is a lot of that is now published online um so and uh as people get their news sources from non-print products and as there is a much wider availability of non-print products the basic subscriptions to newspapers are falling by the wayside so yes it's uh, if you're in a local paper which used to be a license to print money you're in deep trouble and papers yeah. are closing left and right
0: and, and it breaks my heart but it's also it's this it falls out with the record industry they saw the internet coming they saw a transfer of information going from mm-hmm. physical to digital mm-hmm. and from the outside looking in and from the reporters i talked to are like well we're still trying to figure this out it's like the people yeah. up top dug their heels in where everyone else is literally blowing their doors off, figuring out profitability on the Internet.
1: Yeah. And it's um, it's funny who gets screwed somehow. And I, I don't know enough about this to know the whys of how it happened. But artists are now making nothing. Yeah. From, from music. It's, oh, and I'll t- and I, I'll- don't, I don't know why. I don't, I don't understand the detail. I,
0: I can tell you and I can tell you the solution. If, if musicians, okay. if you're an unsigned musician, if you're a signed musician, I'm sorry, you're screwed two ways to Tuesday. So Spotify pays the most in air quotes, mm-hmm. but they pay a different rate in different states and in different countries based on, you know, how much money those areas have and, and what's the likability that they're gonna purchase this song, right? So if an artist mm-hmm. plays in LA, they're gonna get, they're, that song's gonna make them a 10th of a cent more than it would if it was played in Bangladesh mm-hmm. as an example. And if you're an artist and you have your own app or you have your own website and you want to play music that you've created, but it's owned by one of the big labels or small label, Mm -hmm. you can have 10, 20 seconds in your website and it'll transfer you to a player. That player being on Spotify, YouTube, wherever they're engaged the most or that that label gets paid the most. And so they get, Mm -hmm. you know, you get hundred thousand streams, make five bucks. So it's a horrible economic model for them. However, if they own their own music, a thousand downloads of a podcast pays you $21. And wouldn't Mm -hmm. I like to know more about why Maroon 5 wrote a song, how the process went, listen to the song, and then talk more about their favorite places they played the song and then do that three or four times and go through their whole album. That being, let's say there's 12 songs, two songs. Wow, man, we've got six to 10 podcasts plus behind the scenes that you don't think a million of their fans would not listen to instantly and they would get paid directly. I mean, mm-hmm. Rogan's doing, he was doing 30, $40 million a year on his podcast. Those are three hours and he's kind of a nuance. But if those artists own their own music and actually embraced that, mm-hmm. owning it and, and, and took more of the risk on themselves, they could then produce, cause it's not hard to do, we're doing it, a podcast. And I can guarantee that the top 100 artists doing podcasts would be way more popular than a lot of the ones that are out there now. They'd make a ton more money. And so would independents. Because you wouldn't be banging your feet at coffee shops. You'd be engaging with people.
1: My understanding is that ASCAP, BMI, and CSEC have no agreements for podcasts.
0: That's only if it's owned under a label. If you create your own labor that you're independent, it's it doesn't matter. They're not yeah, gonna good. count it as plays. They, now ASCAP and BMI will not count it as plays, but do I care what, I mean, remember the Academy once told Netflix, you'll never win an award. And yeah. Netflix had to make the decision, do I care? Do I really care what these dumb gold trophies of these people in this little room lauding themselves, do I really have to be there today? Well, they more. decided they did. Well, yeah, but they but they decided by just being more popular than the studios. <laughs> they, just, they, they went a different way. And I would challenge musicians like, why are you once again, why are you holding on to old stuff? New keys don't unlock old doors. You can't have a new way of thinking and an old process of doing it or you get into the pickle that you're in today. Correct. And their their innovation is iTunes versus, you know, changing up how they get paid. I. I I feel a little bit for artists because I don't know a lot of musicians that are really good accountants or musicians. <laughs> They've got their niche and right. there are hungry, thirsty people out there, sharks in the water that find that person that just has a niche and they grab onto them like, I'm going to help you, but you're really going to help me. And, uh, you know, I, I think a, a bigger shakeups coming. I think, I think podcasting in my humble opinion is, is really showing a different way to attract media uh, or a different way to be in in media and at the same time attract people. Well,
1: podcasting is actually only one part of the biggest change in media delivery and consumption I've ever seen, which is the move from real time to on demand. Mm -hmm. I don't watch any television shows in real time. No, I'm... I, I simply watch them off my DVR or off a streaming service. The same thing, I mean, podcasts are in essence radio whenever you want it, yeah. Um, and and we have become, um, an absolutely impatient I gotta have it now society. And in terms of how you consume media, there's nothing wrong with that, uh. It's just, I just wish they'd loosen the music rules because I do a, a little radio show once a week on a, uh, a a small station down in Cape May, New Jersey, that I would love to turn into a podcast, but I can't because yeah. it's full of music.
0: Yep. And that's the problem. And then because the record labels haven't figured out how to get their pound of flesh out of that first before they let people enjoy it. And yeah, it's a shame. It, it is a real shame. Uh, what, you know. In your travels, and Mm -hmm. obviously you've done a lot. I mean, you kicked off Diners, Drive-Ins, and Dives, one of mine and my daughter's favorite shows to watch because we road trip everywhere. So there is always a DDD. There's a triple D in there somewhere, right? It's like, where are we going? I hope so. Let's Google this. And you got to go. It's a calling. How much fun was the transition from serious news and then seeing the direction it was going into more informational, educational and inspiring television is kind of how I see diners, drive-ins and dives. Because I am learning something every time I watch it. I'm also Mm -hmm. being inspired because I'm hearing these stories of these people. And then I get the chance to go try it.
1: Well, it was, look, it it was um, an absolutely delightful experience. But let me start from a rather narcissistic point of view. After decades working for bosses in television, um, I was allowed in this particular case to create a vision and then fulfill it. It's uh, interference from the network was pretty minimal. Mm-hmm. and uh when we did disagree about something i was a pretty impassioned advocate for my position and generally won um with a couple of exceptions when the notes were correct at one point um in in pursuit of pace uh for a few shows we weren't lingering on the food long enough after moves to them and uh that was pointed out to me and that was right But for the most part, I was one of the few people in television who got to decide this is what I want to do and then do it Mm -hmm. to the standards that I had set for myself. Now, you make judgments in there. Ninety five percent of the places we booked turned out well, five percent of the places we booked when we got there didn't meet our standards so we walked out now years later when the network found out about that they said why didn't you come to us for more money for those i said because i i signed a deal with you it's a fair amount of money and this is my problem um i i uh, audio sweetening where you go in and if people are familiar with the term foley you create sound effects to to match what's on screen it's hard to get good sound in a restaurant kitchen because of the um, the hoods blowing air. So I used to spend literally 23 hours sweetening every half hour show and a half hour is really 22 minutes and 30 seconds of content. So I basically spent an hour for every minute of the show working with sound because that was important to me because I knew and more people should know that when you're dealing with, especially food where people can't smell you're down and they can't taste. So the two key ways to experience food are not available to you. You're left with only sight and sound. It's really sound as much as anything that drags you in hearing the scrape of the spatula. As you flip that burger, the sizzle from that burger, that that was very important to me. The, The point is, I did it my way and and that that felt very good and and you you mentioned um uh you used some word about benefits from the show the thing I liked about it was um and I didn't know much about well I knew a little but I I didn't know a great amount about the the realities of the independent restaurant business and as I came to learn it's it's economically very tough the margin is very very thin and I came to learn that we saved a bunch of restaurants that were on the verge of going into bankruptcy. Um, and that felt good to me. I, I really enjoyed that.
0: Yeah. I mean, you, you, you jumped right into my next question, which is, because I just, I'm blown away. I mean, I've talked to some of these people. I, mm-hmm. I, I, I mean, obviously I'll talk, I, I love to talk to people and I, I get a cruise. You ought to have a
1: podcast.
0: Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, I've sat down and talked with them it's amazing. It inspired, I mean, diners, drivers and dives inspired something for me that I do with my friends. So we, I live in Austin, Texas. We've got a ton of small towns and little hole in the wall places, 200 person towns within 200 miles of us, hundred miles of us. Once a quarter, I grab a buddy. We book a hotel room in a 500 person town with seven churches and two bars and one restaurant. And you spend the weekend there you leave on a friday come back on a sunday you get to know damn near every person in town you know you've, you've had every beer on tap which is usually three but bud light and something crazy like Dosecki's. No, really no no, no.
1: wait well, hold on hold on <laughs> uh don't you have shiner and a long neck
0: uh they'll have that on not on draft they'll have it on a long neck they'll oh, do long shiner neck. and uh they'll do a uh, lone star you know in the can or in the right. bottle. But it's, uh, you know, it's, it's amazing. And then you get to go in and they're so excited to see a new face. And we went up to this place. I don't even know the name of the town. It was, it had, the, the town had four churches, three banks, one bar. And the bar was called the Horny Toad. And we were probably 30 miles from it in this restaurant. And this gal goes, listen, this area used to be dry about 34 miles away from me. They got one bar. It's called the Horny Toad. You got to go check it out. She neglected to tell me that the Horny Toad is stuck in 1974. Yeah. It, it's 2021. Do they still smoke in the bar? Yes, they do. Do they allow open gambling and just having fun? 100%. They've got a wheel spinner where you can pick odd or even, high or low. $5 a spin. Got to have three people let's gamble. Does the kids volleyball team show up there after they've had a match to eat a burger? Mhm. They do. It was so wild and you've got these old farmers sitting around you know And it's the saturday it's kind of their day off later in the afternoon watch a little college football smoking cigarettes drinking beer you know and the guy's passing out the jerky that he that he just made from from hunting Ooh. season Ooh. Real good, you know And they've got food they're like hey tim tim don't you be a boy all that jerk people gotta buy some food around here <sighs> i'm playing that stupid wheel i win a couple times this gal goes i'd like to play my buddy so he's like let's all play she's one of the moms of the volleyball team it's like, all right, girls, I got $5 here. We're going to win. We'll spin. We tie. So <laughs> we got it. We got, you know, two people got, got the same number. We got all got to pitch in again. So it went from 15 to 30. I went 30 bucks. And you see these kids like they're not getting ice cream now because their coach gambled away the $5 for their ice cream scoops. So I walked over to one of the girls. I'm like, hey, kid, come here. She's like, yeah. I'm like, is that your dad? She goes, yeah, but bring your dad over just randomly giving kids money. That's weird. Yeah. I mean, her and her dad walk over and go, Hey, listen, man, obviously this is just fun for me. I want you guys to have ice cream, but get two scoops. There's 20 bucks nice. and for the team. First, if there's enough left over, you can hook these adults up. You know you know? <laughs> anyway. He laughs hard, shakes my ass, Like, thanks, man. I'm like, come on easy. That, it's fun. Cause we're just here to have fun. But diners driving the dives inspired that to go and just try new places to, to go to the little location that you fall in love with, that, that everyone has to see, has to check out, has to be a part of. And I don't, you know, I don't think the impact of your work and what you've done, you know, like all things great, but it won't be realized for quite a bit of time until that show goes off the air and people go, well, what's, what's going to take it, especially now, what's going to take its place and really help it if it ever does? I mean, that, I'm assuming that's it. Guy just decides he's done, and the kids don't want to take the reins. But you know the impact of what you guys created and what it's inspired other people to do, myself included. I mean, I applaud you, sir. I really do. It's, well,
1: thank you. That's that's very kind of you.
0: It's a it's a beautiful thing, and a, and I love doing it. It's it's fun it's so much. Well, keep fun.
1: doing it. You need look. This is a, a an even tougher time for independent restaurants. The the pandemic killed thousands and thousands and thousands of them so um if there's anyone out there who's regularly going to Chili's or applebee's don't please go to some restaurant owned by a mom and pop where the food's better and while applebee's will pretend to tell you that they're your local joint go find a real local joint
0: absolutely when the pandemic kicked off. The first thing I did with this podcast is I reached out through my network and I went on Instagram and I went to every local restaurant and I messaged them And I said, if you want me to read you a free ad, or you want to come on the podcast, to promote your business, please do. I will do That's it a all good day thing. long. That's a good thing. I just, I don't want them to go away. I know too many small chefs, you know, little restaurants owners. We met this gal at this as uh, a junction bar, junction 86 or 84, mm-hmm. right outside of, um, right outside of uh, Gatesville, Texas. Owners where the hell is
1: Gatesville, is Gatesville, Texas?
0: It's probably fifty miles, seventy miles east of Temple, in the middle. I, of college. I actually
1: know where Temple is. It's okay.
0: <laughs> and so where? I mean, and this has got one main street. All the businesses are bordered up. It's got a couple of hotels. It's Baptist Church country. It was a dry county up until a couple of years ago. And she's on the outskirts of town, and I meet Debbie and Debbie's like and she she employs all the kids she all the seniors she can to work in a restaurant. She employs as many as she can. And you've got 15 kids running around this spot. There's no doubt there's not enough work for 15 kids, but Debbie's trying to help the town out. And she's yeah. doing her best and she's talking about the struggles and but how she saved up because of the good years. We got to sit down and hang out with Debbie. And she got to tell us her story. And how much like, she loves Elvis and why she's got the chandeliers in there and why it's so damn bright in her restaurant.
1: <laughs> By the way, she's right. She's right about Elvis.
0: She is right about Elvis. <laughs> and it was just, and I, I encourage people, man, you got to do that. You got to get that experience. We, the first night we were there, we meet this young lady. She's got a little, a little, uh, wedding band ring on and I go, Oh, remarried. married. She goes, just got engaged. So happy. Oh,
1: and then just and back go, from sales,
0: just back. And I was just like, man, I wonder in this town, who snagged up this pretty young lady? She said, she's, you know, 22, I don't buy that. She looks like she's about 17, but she's serving drinks. So please tell me you're 22. Well, the next night we go in and there's this young man behind the bar, handsome guy. Where are you from? Oh, I'm not from here, I'm from Houston, Texas. And I'm, oh man, that's awesome. He goes, well, you know, I had some problems being in the city. So I came out here and I'm kind of stuck here. I'm like, why are you stuck here, man? It's a car, you just drive whichever direction. He goes, well, I got engaged. I'm like. You're the guy. Oh, you're the one. You're the guy. I go, well, congratulations, man. Your your fiance is a very nice young woman. And he's like, oh, you met her? You're the guys who came in last night? And I was like, shit. It's the talk of the town.
1: And, and by the way, they both now look back on that time
0: <laughs> of their starter first marriage fondly. I told him. I gave him my number. And I gave him my business card. And I said, when you guys get around to getting married, shoot me a message. I'll get you guys a gift.
1: Oh,
0: I meant it. And I will. If they That's message nice. me, I will. I think, I think random things like that are important. I mean, I'm from, such they a, are, I'm from such a small town in Montana. It's important. I mean, my, that daughter- was
1: redundant. You're from a town in Montana.
0: <laughs> By the way, there's two,
1: I got two restaurants from Butte in my book. Two.
0: Butte's a tough town. Now
1: I'm Casa I- Grande's Steakhouse. Okay. Because they serve sushi that includes a pork chop, and um, them, uh, the the pecan noodle parlor, okay, which is the oldest continuously running family Chinese restaurant in America, which still serves chop suey.
0: Really? Yeah. My neighbor, we, we, so my, I have this long standing joke with him, and it holds pretty true with anyone you talk to in Montana. You meet a man. He's from Butte. You meet a man from Butte, and he's got a full set of teeth. He was the toughest kid in town. <laughs> it's just... Do you
1: remember the Frank Zappa song with the lyrics "Gonna move to Montana, gonna raise some dental floss"? Yes, that was a classic.
0: And now, in all your travels, you know, and especially in this book mm-hmm. that that you're that uh, now is the book done? Or are you still in... done? It's out. It's Buy out. it. Buy it. Where can we buy it? Amazon.
1: Food, Food Americana. Go to Amazon, Barnes and Noble, any any online bookstore. Perfect. Um, Amazon is probably the best because they keep the metrics. But yeah, it's called Food Americana. It's been out for several months. Perfect. Uh We've won a couple of awards. Um, I'm very proud
0: of it. Take a look. Where, um, what you know in your travels and and for the book, you know you brought up Butte. What are some places that stick out to you that People might not think are iconic places for food but you know like no one's thinking butte montana oldest family operated chinese
1: restaurant yeah it's great well um okay i'll i'll uh, you want me to stay domestic
0: okay uh, you, don't have to on, stay to domestic. you can go anywhere in the world you want as far as i'm concerned
1: uh ethiopia really on on uh, the, the most incredibly beautiful country i've ever been to everyone thinks because of what you see on the news that it's just um people starving in a desert there are mountains and pine forests and the Ethiopian food which is based around these thin pancakes that you use kind of like tortillas to pick food up uh especially when they're served with a very spicy meat I was going to say beef but it's probably um lamb or goat uh Ethiopia is extraordinary just just absolutely extraordinary um and Spain, which most Americans don't think of going to first. Everyone talks about Paris or Rome or London. Um, My favorite European country is Spain. The variety of foods is unbelievable. Um, Last time I was there, uh, my wife and I, um, I tried barnacles for the first time at the Central Market in um, Valencia or Malaga. I think it was Malaga. Uh, and I thought barnacles were just some disgusting sea creature that attached to the hulls of boats and had to rid of them. Actually, turns out they're a crustacean, and they look ridiculous. But when you crack them open, the meat is kind of like crab or lobster, and there's not much of it because they're small. But um, they were great, and as of course is uh, yamoni Bedico, uh, the the ham that is that is raised, especially the the Top tier of it, the the uh, pigs eat nothing but uh, wild acorns, and the the taste is unbelievable. In the United States, I'm not sure I can say I've been surprised because I've gotten so used so used over the years to finding remarkable little restaurants in little places. Um, you know, uh, one of the best. Uh, Louisiana meals I ever had was when my crew and correspondent and I were driving from um New Orleans up to the state prison to interview a guy the day before they executed him and we stopped on the side of the road by this little shack and and had gumbo that would just knock your socks off um I you know there's no surprise to saying Texas barbecue is is remarkable and you live in Austin and I have not been to Franklin's which everyone says is the greatest barbecue on Earth but from my experience Louis Miller's in in Taylor which is I guess what 45 minutes from you 50 minutes yeah that, that to me is the Cathedral of all things barbecue I mean that's just the single finest barbecue i've ever tasted in my life and what's what's incredible about it watching the now deceased bobby muller who who was um, louis son the the place is now run by wayne bobby's son, but watching bobby make brisket literally using nothing but salt and pepper that was it i mean there's no other seasonings no other spices and, in the middle of an interview, you know watching him turn around and move briskets to different parts of the grill and saying to well, him, "Why'd you do that? How'd you know to do that?" You said it was time, you know, different heat and different uh and, and the sausage I mean to me, that's just phenomenal i mean there's what is i guess sort of surprising, but not not anymore, is the degree to which formerly regional specialties have now moved to the rest of the country i mean i'm jewish i'm from new york i i um i'm real particular about my bagels that kind of handmade boiled new york bagel can now be found in many many places where I hate the word artisanal, but where artisanal bagel bakeries have opened up. I mean, there's a place in Denver called Rosenberg's where not only do they make the bagels by hand, they they smoke their own salmon and and other traditionally um, Jewish appetizing store fish like sable, but they treat their water to mimic the chemical makeup of water in New York City because of the old well belief anyway i'm not sure it's true that it's the new york water that makes new york bagels so special um lobster rolls which used to be you had to go to new england to well to massachusetts or, or maine really to get a lobster roll because i know the ones in connecticut that they make with the warm butter or bs but anyway <laughs> lobster rolls are now being franchised Across the country,
0: yeah,
1: and uh, when Down East Magazine uh, out of Maine a few years back ran a contest to find the best lobster roll in the world, they they gave the title to Freshies in, uh, in Salt Lake City, Utah. Now, Freshies is run by a couple of transplanted New Englanders, but the concept of finding such a high quality lobster roll, uh, you know, by the Great Salt Lake, is kind yes. of remarkable.
0: Well, and Salt Lake is a weird place because if you're a foodie, it's actually yeah. a great city to be. I mean, you know, you got to think the red iguana. The red iguana. We the, we shot the, there, didn't we? Yeah, mole. Yeah, the best mole in America. Um, there Over. was.
1: It, it's a strange place. I remember when I used to go there working domestically for NBC. You had to go to a special corner of the restaurant to buy an airplane miniature yep Buffy I'm talking (laughs) to have (laughs) alcohol I don't know if that's still the case but I also know that they had a place there called the New York Oyster (laughs) Bar, Buffy please that that made um was a heck of a dinner restaurant um so Uh, Look, Salt Lake is an interesting combination of of many things.
0: Yes, it is. Um, I have a friend who's a chef there. She started out in a food truck. She worked her way up. Now she's like managing three or four restaurants. I mean, even, you know, I'm I'm amazed at the go-getters and I love what they're doing. So my buddy, Sean, uh, he's got a barbecue restaurant in San Diego and I always make fun of him. And it's like beach cities don't do barbecue right because barbecue's heavy and you guys like to surf right uh, you know run the beach and you're not running the beach and thinking you know it'd be really good right now pulled pork sandwich it's just but he's done something wild the year before covid he did about 300,000 in sales right. year into covid 3 million but even Excuse more me? delivery the, i assume delivery yeah delivery pickup started started people are like oh i'd really like your food but you're too far away so he was leasing ghost kitchens. He was jumping into you know places that went out of business, mm-hmm. like I just need your kitchen and a delivery driver and hit neighborhoods and do that. But more importantly, he started telling people how and why he was being successful and how they can do it like he's doing it so that he's not the only one as an independent- Well, see,
1: that's, that, that, that's um, what we would say, uh, he's being a mensch he's being a good guy he's doing the (laughs) right thing um that's and look many most people in the restaurant business most mom and pops hey buffy i have given you so many treats um (laughs) most people in the restaurant business are giving people they they want to make people happy
0: yeah um and you know that's a good thing do you um when you go into a restaurant Side unseen do you can you tell by the way it's operating what you're going to get
1: there are people who tell you they can there are people who tell you go check out the restroom if it's clean it's a good restaurant i don't know i have been in enjoyed and assessed billions of restaurants all around the world and i haven't got a clue when i walk
0: in yeah. No. I'm with you. Thank you. Cause I walk and yeah. sometimes, you know, it could be bad service, great food. And I always tell people, I'm like, listen, man, then you tip the kitchen.
1: I always, it, it, it is lunch. what it is. I don't know what's going on. You know, yeah. it's, it, it's,
0: I mean, it could be someone having a bad day. I always tell people about, you know, we, we just came back from all these places. I give everyone the five, four, whatever the five-star Yelp review. Mm-hmm. I use Yelp to celebrate. You See, know? I don't, I don't trust Yelp at all. I, I use it. I, I, use I, it don't. I use it to celebrate. I, I think that the bad ones, people are usually, you know, what they got a bad experience. Maybe it is a bad place. I don't know, but I'd rather judge it myself, and I would rather celebrate, you know, uh, if you will, the whole idea of once again trying something new and having fun. I mean, that's the whole point. Yeah, I mean, I, And I not everything's a winner. I mean, my daughter and I, we hit road trips. You get stinkers, and that I mean, she's told me we drove up to Montana, and I took the most. Roundabout way going through Roswell, New Mexico, so we could have air quotes alien pancakes. Because, oh, at
1: that Area 51 place, yeah. And I was like, This, yeah, that's and, a tourist trap from way back,
0: yeah. And the pancakes weren't that good. And she looked at me and she goes, Dad, these aren't that good, but man, what an experience! What an experience! And I was look, like, you yeah. gotta try if you one of the things
1: buffy i don't know what i can do to keep you quiet (laughs) one of the things we'll try more treats. one of the things that i hate about the american eh, that's painting with a broad brush about many americans attitude toward food is the fear of trying stuff yeah i just man if you just take Ah. one bite if you don't like it that's fine but it's the Ah. fear of something new it's Ah.
0: Buffy, what is the problem? Buffy, Buffy's um, like, I've got some ideas I, on food. I like some of the... Well, she does, food. actually. <laughs> she likes what I cook. Uh, there,
1: there's a, a great I, restaurant analyst called David... Uh, well, called his name is David Portalatin. And he understands the economics of the restaurant business as, as well as anyone. And he once explained to me that Americans love to try something new as long as they've had it before. I love Which that. is why our love for fried chicken morphed into our love for chicken sandwiches during the Great Chicken Sandwich War of 2019. Um, but no, as a culture, we are we are not at all food adventurous, mm-hmm. and that's that's really a shame.
0: Yeah, no, I I agree with you. I think that's um, you've got to be more adventurous. we we're, we were going through. Alabama, and we and my mm-hmm. my kids like I'm a little bit hungry. They're like, oh man, well let's stop here, see if there's a snack here. And we, I stay off major highways. I'm only I'm going in for the win. Like I, mm-hmm. I no interstates, two lane highways. Daughter sees the old water towers. She knows it could be a potential bathroom yes. break. That's the excitement, and we stop at this place. It's a McDonald's that they've gutted and turned into uh, kind of a local butcher shop where they're only butchering alligator. Oh, hello. So we walk in. It's like chicken. I uh, love alligator. And we walk in, we walk to the back. and It's got one of the old foam, big thick foam toilet seats that is cracked. And my daughter looks around, she goes, dad, this looks disgusting. And then she takes a big breath and she goes, smells fantastic in here though we got to try some (laughs) sweet and I just you gotta you 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 gotta go
1: for it I I I remember I had tried tripe at the point in time of this story so you couldn't blame me you couldn't call me non-adventurous but I had also decided I didn't like tripe Mm -hmm. and we were covering pope john paul's first appearance in poland now he was from poland the government which was still communist really didn't want him there but they couldn't say no and he gave a mass in the town of wuj to literally a million people and we were stuck the the press corps was stuck on a wooden platform in the middle of this all day for like they made us sit the government was going to make it as uncomfortable as possible so we were on this tower in the the hot sun for like eight hours with nothing to eat or drink while while mass took place on the way back to warsaw in the government bus it was the only way they would let us travel there was a minor revolt because we hadn't eaten anything and this was all western press And there was a lot of complaining. And finally they decided that they would stop and feed us. And they pulled into a restaurant where we were told the only available item was tripe.
0: How hungry are you, David?
1: (laughs) I ate some. I I ate some tripe. Yeah.
0: I, uh, you know, I I wonder if you look at, and I'm going to jump back to the movie here real quick, you know, the, the, the way Stuart is, he's this investigator. And I wonder Mm -hmm. for you as a journalist, what was more fun, the story when it was done or the investigation leading up to it? I, I will,
1: I will concede that the thing I love most about making television was shaping the eventual story in the edit room. Okay. The, Next to that, it was the investigation. It was tracking down the truth. Mm -hmm. Um, And and I spent many years as an investigative reporter or producer. And I just, that was like doing a jigsaw puzzle. Now, I brought those same requirements to diners. Diners went through the same fact-checking that I made my producers go through when I ran the investigative unit of 2020, I wasn't going to be one of these food shows that made stuff up.
0: Yeah.
1: If, if it, it had to be right, it had to be true, it had to be accurate. And there's a lot of tall tales told in the name of food journalism. You know, if, if you believe those stories, everything worth eating was invented at the St. Louis World's Fair. No. <laughs> uh, or, or Louis' lunch in New Haven, Connecticut, uh, created the first hamburger. I like Louis' lunch to make a good hamburger, but there's no real evidence they were first. You know, it's that sort of thing.
0: No, it's true. You know, it's, um, I, I hear some stuff. i watch some shows and I, you can, inst- I can pick out one because I've had the privilege to work with journalists for so long. I can pick up the fakes real right. quick, right? real quick. And, uh, you know, listen, those, some of those shows are still popular and good for them. Uh, just not my cup of tea, right? I want... I, you know, I, uh, I like it when people are celebrated, not belittled. I like it when businesses and ideas are, uh, can be challenged, you know, or, or thought of, you know, they, they maybe see the world a little differently and you can like it or dislike Mm -hmm. it, but it's just open and honest. It's not contrived. Um, And that's, it's one of those, it's, I, you know, I wonder if you take a step back and you're looking at news and television in general. It seems to me that there is a time and period now where we've lost an angle of ownership or responsibility. Like we just don't take it anymore. You make a mistake, yeah, but the next show's tomorrow, so we just got to go. Versus there, that pause, yeah. that ownership.
1: Well, it's look, it, it, it again. I don't believe it's well. It Depend. I mean, I, I think Fox makes it up left and right, but. Legitimate media outlets are are not slanting things on purpose, in my view, for the most mm-hmm. part. But there's very little accountability. You know, yeah. look, and that's been traditional in journalism. The, the headline goes on page one. When it turns out to be wrong, the retraction goes on page 37.
0: So... <laughs> in Smaller print in the back. <laughs> yeah,
1: you know. Um, and it's exacerbated by, by an interesting debate that's been going on when, when the internet started, there was a decision made, um, to, um, and either legislation or regulation passed that decided that internet, um, entities were not publishers. They were simply pass throughs like the phone company. Um, and you know, the, the idea was, uh, to keep them in business it was going to be tough to check stuff well you know what um in my view uh Facebook which makes gazillions of billions of dollars a year should be subject to the same standards that apply the libel laws that apply to the New York Times I agree um, 100%. and if if there is untruth that damages someone they should be able to see you for libel and uh, I, I, you know, it, there's a big debate about this, uh, obviously they don't want that to happen, but it, it, it's one of the, you know, there's responsibility that comes with free speech and the way it's built into our system is you can say anything you want, but, um, if it hurts someone and is wrong, uh, you may have to pay them. Yeah, And that system while imperfect has worked pretty damn well over the years. And I, I, look, um, I just, I, I don't understand why it can't be applied to the internet.
0: No, I mean, I, I look at, especially with the inception of the internet, I, I've always said two things. Uh, you know, I, I think it really rings true with what you said one, there's a great price for the freedom of speech and one mm-hmm. that we do not write a check for and that's education. Yes. You know, listen, it's one thing to have the world at your fingertips. It's another thing to decipher what it means to have the world at your fingertips. And we're not, we're not mm-hmm. getting that piece. We've cut that piece yeah, but, out. And... But see,
1: there's a flip side to all of this too, which is I'm a First Amendment absolutist. Mm-hmm. I hello, lady. Pardon me, I have another dog. Hey, I oh, like
0: to go out.
1: Nice. Nice move, thus revealing the bookshelf as a facade. <laughs> um I'm a First Amendment absolutist. I don't know if you can remember, if you're old enough to remember this, but there was a time back in the day where a neo-Nazi group wanted to march in Skokie, Illinois, which was full of Holocaust survivors. And it was the ACLU, a heavily Jewish organization, and specifically Jewish lawyers from the ACLU, that fought in court for their right to do it. Because the First Amendment doesn't just protect pleasant speech, it's supposed to protect all speech. And as much as I believe that um, it's irresponsible, for example, for Facebook to be posting a lot of what it posts, I, I want the, um, the old libel law system to be the punishment for that. I am deeply distressed by conversation among legislators to, in essence, force them to control their content in a certain way that's not the first amendment
0: no it's not and, it, and it you know and we've
1: me. we've become and look we've become as a society so idiotically afraid of ideas that um you can get fired from a position as a teacher on a college campus for inadvertently saying something perfectly reasonable that some kid declares to be triggering I mean we're we're, we're such um we're so afraid of we're afraid of, of considering other opinions. We, um, and I think to a great extent, it's a a Gen Z and millennial thing. And I think it is because everyone got a participation trophy when they played soccer. And now I'm the cranky old man on the roof, yelling at the kids to get off my lawn.
0: Hey, I'm the cranky old man yelling the same thing. I, uh, I don't, I think accountability, responsibility is one thing. I think pre-censoring or, you know, it it, it blows my mind. One, you'll have them, whether it's YouTube or Facebook or Twitter, they'll have, you know, Instagram, they'll come together and they'll be like, okay, we're not going to allow this piece of information to go out. We're just not. Because Mm -hmm. it's harmful and it's going to hurt people. And that seems good. But one, I need to know where the idiots are. So
1: one- You can't protect me from myself.
0: You can't. And, uh, you know, and the mirror pops up and I'm like, there's the idiot. But two, I also, you know, you to understand good, you have to know where the bad is and you have to know how to have, to articulate that conversation, to have those, those moments in time where you, you're not running away from saying, oh, you know what, you're dumb or that's not right. That's not a response or, you know, let me just tell you what the CDC says and then just listen to it blindly and just run forward. And, I, and you know, it's amazing. They'll take certain things off, they'll leave psychics on.
1: Who steal mm-hmm. money
0: from people, who lie to people, over the phone, doesn't, know that's okay. Flat earth, okay, because it's kind of funny. Well, that's, that's, that's against science. Both are against science. So why do they stay another thing goes? Like, well, it's a different kind of protection. And now we're getting into this layering thing and it becomes almost like religion, right? God said, don't do these two things, but I'm afraid that you're not going to quite understand it. So I'm going to put a fence a little wider out. I'm going to say, don't do these four things. So you'll never do these two things. And then someone Mm -hmm. else comes and says, well, actually there's six here because that's going to lead to this. And so we're really just going to hone all of these things out. And your thought process is eliminated. Your ability to not just debate, not argue, debate is gone. Mm hmm. And now you've pushed people into dark corners to sit and fester.
1: Mm-hmm. And that's
0: more dangerous to me than anything else.
1: Couldn't agree more.
0: You know, and couldn't people, agree and, more. And I, I don't think people understand too. You can disagree with someone and still have a fun conversation with them and still respect them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, I I gotta take speech and debate in high school as a class to understand mm-hmm. how to communicate. And when I taught college, I made people give speeches on things that were polar opposites to what they believed in. I Absolutely. made them do it. I mean, I Absolutely. was at a Christian college and I said, you are giving a speech in front of your hundred classmates about the mm-hmm. benefits of condoms." <laughs> and why premarital sex is awesome.
1: Especially in a communist country.
0: Especially. That's
1: Right. <laughs> Go have premarital sex in Bulgaria.
0: Fantastic. And so the guy's like, I can't do it. And he goes, well, I go, do, do you have, you know, do you have props? It's like, what? I'm like, you're giving a priest, you're trying to win me over. Yeah. He passed out condoms and you'd have thought he was throwing out little cancer sticks. People are avoiding that. And I was like, <laughs> you dummies, it's plastic, it's rubber. Are you serious? You're scared to touch this? Well, yep. it might incite me to have sex. I'm like, this is why we're having the class i taught one i just wanted to realize the power of language and also mm-hmm. understand and, and i want to run this past you because i i could have been wrong this whole time and if i am, i've got a lot of apologies to mm-hmm. i wanted to show people that the, one of the reasons we have a problem with communication is inherently the roots of where communication is manipulated from and so what i said is it first said, everyone write down all the horrible things you'd call a woman or a minority just write them down a piece of paper as many as you can think of
1: well you couldn't get away with that teaching today but anyway this was
0: 1999 and they said okay i got all the paper and then i wrote down the sections and i wrote it down and you saw everyone from writing it down to now they're reading it on the chalkboard Mm -hmm. and now everyone's like i mean it's really uncomfortable really uncomfortable so we're going through and going through, and I'm writing more stuff down, and it's getting quieter, and you can just feel the tension in the air. Like would anyone like to read these? Not a hand goes up.
1: <laughs>
0: I said, all right, now here's what I want you. to. I want you to look at. I'm just going to point to them. We're not going to say them out loud. That's fine. I'm going to point to them, and we're and you guys raise your hands when you think it's it's the most vulgar, it's the most hurtful thing you could say to that group. Circle. I said, all right, now look at all these words. Of you. Is there any one of those words you can call me that will have the same impact that would have on these groups if you call them those words? Any of them. There is just silence. We have an imbalance in language. And this imbalance in language and not addressing it, just not addressing that it's just not perfect, allows and forcing people to kind of fall under a, a very specific construct where all these hurtful words live except for, for one group, one specific group creates this imbalance and that creates tension and communication. Probably could have taught that a lot differently, but <laughs> it was the best way I knew how. Oh, I think you froze on me. Did I lose David? I see his, his eyes are closed folks. And I don't know if he's agreed with me or disagreed with me. This is, oh. He's going to come back i think here we go okay he said uh, he has stepped away i think his internet got a little catchy we're just keep going right now um i think they're in the they're in some wild forest uh looking at oh yeah they're looking at the oldest tree uh outside of san francisco uh obviously a green screen in, in some capacity but still uh lots of fun and uh yeah this is and i know we're not talking a lot about the movie part of people but we're uh, we're, we're getting after it and it is um, you know, this is, this is fun stuff. This is, the, this is the things that I live for. Right here. there, he is. Guess who's back? Oh, you're 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 muted, there, sir. What the There's hell got, happened? Yeah, it's the internet. We're talking about fun stuff. We're we're now we're now is the
1: it was the NSA cracking down.
0: <laughs> but that's... so yeah, that was my my process was walking through and then showing people inadequacies in, in language and saying, hey, just be patient and yeah. understand that language impacts people differently. Not saying. I don't think we have to go to the extremes where we're at today, right? Where- no, nah,
1: it's, it's, it's fascinating. I mean, we, we were at what I thought were friends. Uh, we were visiting some quote friends, unquote. And in the middle of the conversation, he used the term judom down Whoa. to reference negotiating for a better price. And I realized um this guy grew up with some anti-semitic tendencies and um we didn't socialize much with them after that
0: yeah i don't blame you there are that's amazing
1: uh, what people will say
0: it, you know i that's why i never trust someone I, I i hyperbole broad brush i never trust someone that doesn't drink i want to get you a little tipsy and i want to see what comes out i want to see what right. you really get fired up about i want to see right. where where you lie. And alcohol has this beautiful way of just.
1: Yeah, it does. <laughs> yeah. And no, it, it's, it's the asshole detector.
0: It is, you know, dogs, dogs and alcohol.
1: They, uh, that's it. That's absolutely right. And drunk dogs are the best.
0: <laughs> uh, remind me. I've got a, and cause my, uh, I, I might forget. I have a note, but that doesn't matter. Um, I got to I got to grab your. Well, I'll just tell it now. Who cares? Uh, so I also run a magazine called mm-hmm. The Private Client. It, mm-hmm. It's invitation only, goes to a very select group of these customers for this very affluent firm called PCMA. Anyways, we profile food and homes and cars and dah, 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 the whole thing. Uh, I'd like to profile your book.
1: You are a great human being and a credit to this conversation. <laughs> uh, I we'll, will. E-
0: we'll, we'll email on it later, but I I wanted to put that right. out there because I just uh, we did one with uh, my buddy who's a uh, he's a uh, chef TV personality, chef. His name's Chef Joe Gatto, and he has a show called From Scratch, where he literally makes everything from scratch. Made his knife that he uses in the show from scratch. You know, this is, it, but it, it, it was a point. It's like, hey, man, wouldn't it be fun? For this first for this one give me three or four recipes that people can make at home where they would impress their dinner guests it's it's easy to order food in it's easy to have your cook right. make something for you but let's challenge this affluent group of people to make something let's see how they do that's nice that's good but now this one i can challenge them go somewhere go to these great. unique places and try them and get this book that'd be and great get it, and get a road map to society that's fun that'd
1: be great i also have recipes at the end of each chapter
0: yes Fantastic. I have a
1: recipe at the end of each
0: chapter. Nice. Now, what is your, what's your go-to food?
1: My go-to food. Yeah. The, the, you're talking about the death row meal.
0: Yes. There you go.
1: Lox bagel and cream cheese. Nice. It's the perfect food. <laughs> it's just, it's got everything you need. Um, and uh also you know they don't always execute people at midnight you can eat it at any time of
0: day it's true that's true that is that's true i uh mine uh, is, is not nearly as complicated and bastardized probably quite a bit pizza oh
1: well pizza look pizza's not bastardized pizza's evolved there are 30 styles of pizza in america that evolved after the uh southern italian immigration wave in the late 1800s um you know they came over here uh, especially folks from naples uh where food where pizza had been the food of the poor i mean what what's cheaper or more obtainable than some dough and some tomato and that's all it was if, if you had a couple extra bucks maybe you'd get some lard on top but basically it was the 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 cheapest poorest food you could eat when <coughs> pardon me when the Neapolitans arrived here they found um a changed set of circumstances for for instance American wheat had a different protein level than uh, the wheat in southern Italy American bakers used coal-fired ovens not wood so right off the bat you were making pizza with a crispier crust than then they were used to uh, and as pizza over time spread across america uh regions uh, individual pizza makers uh who were then copied by others invented regional styles uh, there, there's there's nothing bastardized about saint louis pizza made with provel processed cheese that includes among other things liquid smoke it's what pizza evolved to there Um, In Buffalo, pizza is served with um, cup and char pepperoni. It's a pepperoni slice that is um, specifically curls up when it's heated and Mm -hmm. you end up with a nice pool of grease. Mm -hmm. Rony cups. Yeah, those are great. I mean, every food that we took from another culture, we changed to be ours. What's fascinating is that true... Neapolitan pizza uh, has come back in the hands of a new generation of artisanal, again, that word, pizza makers, who, if they make it right, may well severely disappoint their customers, because real Neapolitan pizza is, is soupy, it's not crisp, and, and the middle of it is incredibly wet. and it is not what most americans expect in a pizza tony gemignani who runs a number of pizzerias in northern california is a 13-time international pizza champ he's one of the leading lights in the pizza world and and for the book he allowed me to participate in a a pizza making week-long pizza making class he was he was giving uh tony says that if you order a neapolitan from him and he notices that you're talking after it got to the table and it's gone on more than a minute, uh, he'll send the waiter over and say, take it away, I'll make him a new one. It can't stand that long. It'll decompose. Really? So, yeah, yeah. Wow. There's, um, And that's why real Neapolitan can't be delivered. Yeah. Put no. that thing in a box and drive it around town for 30 minutes, you're going to end up with
0: mush. I mean, I, I and I find you know, I, there's a joke that I someone sent to me. I love it, right? If you can figure out why a round pizza is put in a square box and cut into triangles to eat, you're on your way to understanding women. I like if it was only that easy. Uh, but, <laughs> yeah, but you know, well, I, there's. go ahead. I was gonna say, but then, you know, it's then the De- De- Detroit comes in. And they're like, here, I'll just make a square pizza. Uh, well, Detroit problem.
1: pizza was initially made in blue steel automotive pans i'm not sure if they held oil or you put your your tools in them but they were liberated from an auto parts fabricator or a uh, an auto plant and that's how that pizza began and you know it's funny because for 60 years detroit pizza was anonymous outside of michigan Mm -hmm. until it's having now it's having its moment yeah because sean rondazzo who uh, ran a Detroit style pizza place in Detroit, competed in the, I think it was international, certainly national, in the pizza championships in Vegas a few years back, and he won with Detroit pizza. And all of a sudden, Detroit pizza was hot and Esquire did a piece on it. And now you can get it at, uh, I'm not sure if it's Domino's or Pizza Hut. Sean, unfortunately, passed away a few years ago quite young um, but, yeah, that, that, that's what gave Detroit its moment. The question is, what's going to be
0: next? Yeah, and it's, you know, it's uh, what Pizza Hut got its mom, was different because they used sourdough bread. And it, was, it had something to do with the founder. It was closer to easier for him to get sourdough. And then my favorite is the billionaire who no one knows. He's done one interview in like 40 years. Who? He, he was a cheese maker, or he worked at a cheesemaking shop. And he's like, oh, wow. He started noticing more pizza places coming around when he was a kid. And they were selling more to these local pizza places. And he saved up his money and started making his own cheese. And now he provides the cheese for Papa John's, Domino's, and Pizza Hut. And then three of the top. Somebody's got to do it. And three of the top Frozens, right? And someone's got to it. He's, he's a billionaire now. And he's done just like one or two interviews last 40 years. And everyone, you know, they write these stories about him like once, a, you know, once every four or five years, like you know, the man behind all the cheese that you eat. But I well, love it because he started as a kid just and he saw something as a kid.
1: More power to him, but I would rather be pushed off the vertigo bell tower <laughs> than eat one of those commercial blah bland crapola pizzas.
0: I'm with you on that. I'd rather, I mean, we make our own. I love because I love the experiment. I, I, you know, we were, I, had some, I had a buddy over. He's from Chicago. And my daughter was like, hey, let's make pizzas. And I said, all right. Not deep
1: dish. Pizza. Please not deep dish. That's oh. a casserole.
0: See, it is a casserole. I'd never made deep dish before. So I got some oh, dough.
1: Oh,
0: you didn't. I made it in a small uh, cast iron. Loaded okay. the bottom and the edge with fresh shaved Parmesan. Like big, mm-hmm. wide, thick pieces. Mm-hmm. Then put the dough in. In a hot pan, set that in for a minute. I actually the dough started to really rise and expand. I popped it, put the toppings on and more cheese on, put it back in and just really let it cook, and then oh, it's sauce on at the end. And I'd never done it before. I just wanted to experiment try I didn't need it. Uh, I don't, that's too much, that's too much dough for me. It just is. He loved it. Yeah. He's like, oh my goodness. He goes, Jay, this is this is really good Chicago deep dish pizza. How long have you been doing this? And I said, I just made it up today. And he gets so mad at me because he's like i'll come back and ask you to do this and you okay and it will be completely different every time you see
1: that's my problem i'll make something and my wife will say this is fantastic and then she'll ask for it a week later and i won't make it the same yeah yeah no it's uh, you know it's funny i was just in florida with my wife to visit her mother who is an incredibly active 103 and we said, "Where do you want to go for lunch tomorrow?" She said, "You know, I haven't had pizza in a long time." So in Delray, Florida, Delray Beach, Delray, whatever, we we go to this local pizzeria. She said they started going to thirty years ago, which is owned by a guy out of New York. And the pizza was phenomenal, unbelievable. Wow. It was. I mean, I live in New Jersey, home of good pizza, and yeah. this stuff was absolutely top. And then, mommy. Two pieces with extra cheese and pepperoni at one hundred and three. Uh,
0: yes. We did. Yeah. Uh, my favorite pizza spot is in Kalispell, Montana. And it was an old mafia boss who came and opened up this place. And they've got that thick, bigger chunks of cornmeal that they throw in the oven first before they put the dough down. Yeah. To, to, yeah. I mean, That's... this place is so old school. You walk up to a window you know, like, I'd like to order a pizza. And they go, okay, where are you sitting? And then it's got a, a little drawn map to the left of the register. And it's just these t- t- squares with numbers on it. And you're trying to do the quick math. And you're like, I think I'm 11. Uh, they're like, okay. And then they just give you a stack of napkins. You can go to the bar and you can get a beer, maybe a soda if it's available or for sure a water for the kid. And it's in an old ice house. So there's no windows sawdust on the floors. And, uh, yeah, this guy was around for a while before uh the family that got arrested the banker that was investigating them he committed suicide by stabbing himself in the back four times he left a note <laughs> worst <laughs> case
1: of suicide i've ever seen the guy yeah. had incredibly long arms yeah and
0: really wanted to die i mean obviously and then we go, you was, know <laughs> you got to be
1: careful and when we were shooting the diners pilot mm-hmm. we were shooting in a diner uh, across from a refinery in New Jersey in Linden and this was Guy's first day shooting with us ever and he's doing great he's back behind the counter but he keeps joking about the mob and that if he doesn't get the order right we'll find him somewhere dead and I finally dragged him outside and explained Guy you're in New Jersey at least one guy that i can identify at the counter is packing a gun can you please put an end to the mafia jokes
0: please my my, one of my dearest one of my my wife's dearest friends one of my dear friends here in austin her one of her first jobs she worked at a pizzeria in new jersey Mm -hmm. and she's like oh well a lot of mob people just the facts of life i mean uh yeah hey We got a
1: family friend who became a lawyer because her father was in the mob and the feds were after him. So, hey,
0: hey,
1: um, she's a hell of a cook. (laughs) A hell of a cook.
0: They, you know, talk about from scratch. I mean, that's from scratch from from back in the day. No, no, no. Yeah, but you
1: you know, it's interesting. That's the evolution of Italian American food. When dirt poor Italians came to America they were astonished to find out that, even if you were poor here, you could afford stuff like meat, yeah, and that's why meat intensive Sunday sauce, you know what used to just be a marinara sauce now was being made with brochol or pork ribs or veal. The whole tenor of of cooking started to make tremendous use of items that simply had not been available back home kind of like my grandfather, when we would, you know, he escaped Germany ahead of the Nazis. And when we would go to dinner anywhere, if there was not bread on the table, he insisted on a bread basket being brought out, not that he would ever eat it, but he damn well wanted to know it was there.
0: I like that. I like that a lot. There's, um, I'll bring back Sean at Kelly barbecue real quick. Uh, You know, his his grandfather raised him from Romania, and he escaped. Uh, and learned how to speak English and became to America because he learned how to speak English from a doctor that was there. who mm-hmm. was, you know, helping the kids out, doing the checkups, the international doctor and took a shine to him. And the, uh, the stories that Sean would tell about his grandfather coming over, you know, and he ran restaurants and he had a, it was interesting because his, his grandmother's Asian, she's Japanese. So you have you know, Bulgarian food, which is like, Hey, there's a table, fill it up, right? right? Use your hands, get in there. Like it's, the more right. the merrier. And Japanese food is so, so just specific. And there's there's a method for every single thing that's on or not on that yeah. plate. Yeah. I said, what was that like? And he goes, maybe the man I am today. Like I know when to be specific and, and really and go after something. And when to just say, come to the table. Nice. And, and food taught him that. You know, and, nice. and that leads to my like question for you: Is like, do you think people truly understand what really food brings to us? Not just as far as nutrition, but I mean, you, we've got, we've got no, more they, food TV shows than ever before, and no one ever, no one spends it. Like, I'll watch, let's say, Top Show. My favorite mm-hmm. part is when they're eating the food around the table, not when they're critiquing it, when they're eating mm-hmm. it. Yeah, I
1: I am no fan of food competition shows. Yeah. I think it, it it it's like having I don't know, a clothes washing competition. The point of food isn't to yell and scream. The point of food isn't to run around. Um as I hope I make clear in in my book,
0: and it's in My
1: View Food is um well first of all it's the gateway to cultures Mm -hmm. you know when I when I was sent to internationally and I had never thought of going international I'm suddenly going from country to country I know nothing about it was to a great extent through the food and through sharing the food with locals that I started to understand various countries more importantly food is the great social lubricant it's um it's a way that we share warmth and and our lives with other people. And I think to a great extent, even though people get the benefit of that, they, they don't think about it or identify it. And frankly, uh, with the death of family dinners and with us eating not just fast food, but so much on the run by ourselves, I think that element of humanity has taken a hit. And it's yeah. a shame.
0: I, I couldn't agree with you more. One of the things that we're doing and that I love to do, I mean, quarterly, uh, you know, we have big dinners. I get my master Somalia buddy, he brings some really fun wines or mixed cocktails mm-hmm. in. You bring a chef in, and you get a round table of people who are from all different backgrounds who just see the world completely differently. We start yeah. talking and just hang out. Yeah. And it's you know it's well okay I see where you're coming from from there and there's there's no ne- and the funny thing is everyone's like oh don't talk about religion don't talk about politics don't talk about sex like these are the first things we bring up why because they're not taboos the only taboo no they're thing- not and
1: I hate when I lived in Minnesota if you tried <laughs> to discuss politics at the table you were told not to yeah it's something I care about why can't we
0: talk we don't have to agree. Hmm. Um, my best friend and I don't agree on 90% of things. He, he called his girl. He was like, I have to come home right now. Jason and I agreed on two things. Oh God.
1: (laughs) I'm, I'm, I'm looking for a quote for you. (laughs) I I'm here. It is. Um, I'm about to do a book tour and I've just finished my standard presentation. And in it, there's a wonderful quote from, there was an ancient Greek philosopher by the name of Epicurus. Now, mm-hmm. we know what that word turned into in English. The quote from him is, I'm reading off my other screen, we should look for someone to eat and drink with before looking for something to eat and drink, for dining alone is leading the life of a lion or wolf.
0: Wow. Isn't that great? That is great. Yeah. 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 So your so your book tour, where are you going? It's this is
1: this is um, it's a very specific book tour. There's a the Jewish Book Council
0: okay.
1: runs a tour um where there are opportunities for you to appear at uh, either synagogues or Jewish community centers around the country, and uh, the rule is it has to be either a Jewish subject book or you need to be Jewish. Hey, I'm Jewish and I got a chapter on bagels. And I got another one on Chinese food, so we're good. you are on both um, and, covers. Yes, some some of these are now turning into virtuals. But uh, I'm uh, I'm doing a virtual uh, on Thursday with folks in Dayton, and then next week I'm going driving about three hours to Reading, Pennsylvania, and I'll be going to Ohio and Florida, a few places around the country. I should probably, you know, what I should post that on. Uh, um, on the Food Americana website, uh, uh, Facebook site. I'm going to do that.
0: Yeah, but yeah, I'll, uh, I'll, put, I'll put a link to it in the show descriptions and everything else. So
1: That'd be great, thank you.
0: People can find um, it. So and, and-
1: yeah, no, I, my, the most fun is the Chinese food section because in fact, that old joke is true. Um, Jews did, immigrant Jews began eating heavily in Chinese restaurants to a great extent because the Chinese having been victims of racism in this country were not racist or anti-semitic in um well in, in anything for the most part but um blacks and, and Jews felt comfortable in Chinese restaurants in a way they would not in many other restaurants mm-hmm. at, the, at that time and a, there was a seminal study by gay Tuchman of of the subject and he concluded that eating at Chinese restaurants made Jews feel more American and at the same time um, with all of the offending non-kosher bits and pieces diced and kind of hidden among vegetables and gravy, it was easier to justify the word for non-kosher in, in Yiddish is treif. So the, these foods became, um, known as safe treif. And I used to go with my grandfather who kept kosher to, uh, Chinatown in New York, to all the downstairs restaurants where he had himself convinced that shrimps and lobster sauce was chicken and he he was a, a an honored guest the story he told was that he was a criminal lawyer when he had been an assistant attorney general he claims he ended the tong wars the gang wars in chinatown by calling all the tong leaders together and threatening to deport them all and <laughs> I, I have not researched that story because I so desperately want it to be true, but all I know is he introduced me to Chinese food in Chinatown and he was, he was an honored guest when, when we would go. So wow. who knows what the story really was.
0: Hey, I like it. Well, more I... likely
1: he defended some Tong leaders, but you know, whatever. Hey,
0: I'll, I'll go with, I'll go with either story. I like it. I, no. One of my favorite things, and I do it for my neighbors once a year, I make Chinese food. Mm-hmm. Christmas Eve.
1: Christmas uh, Eve, man.
0: Perfect. Come on, I got twenty people in my house. My perfect. Looking at me like, what are you doing, you idiot? And I'm like making Chinese food, and
1: love well, it. You know that the old joke: a Jewish guy and a Chinese guy meet, and the Chinese guy proudly says, "You know, our culture is more than four thousand years old." And the Jewish guy says, "That's nothing. Our culture is more than five thousand years old." And the Chinese guy says. Where did you eat for a thousand years?
0: <laughs> it was the desert, coming down yeah. from heaven. We had from, heaven. Fine. from heaven, that's what it was. No, it's 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 uh, it's something that my family, you know, I was introduced to by my by, my real dad. Oh, and that's nice. When my mom our second third marriage third marriage, uh, her husband he was uh, he was from New York, and his family that's what they did. On Christmas Eve, it was just a thing. Perfect. In, white, in Whitefish, Montana, we uh, we had Jimmy Lee's, and it was you know run by an overweight white guy, and that's fine. But the food was it was good. And then you know I'm out here in Texas. Not a lot of good Chinese food options. I remember the first year out here, I looked yeah, at it's my a wife rough, and I was just like,
1: "You, you got to go with what's there, dude."
0: You do, and it's it's like the the most consistent, not the best, but the most consistent is either Chinatown or Payway. And that's, you know, and and it's the hours that they're open and when I can get it. You know, the thing is, if you're not prepared, Chinatown's booked out. They're like, we're not taking any same day of orders. Okay, sorry. Yeah,
1: yeah. You gotta gotta do what you gotta do. By the by the way, interestingly enough, there is a Christmas Eve tradition in Japan where admittedly, not that many people are Christian. Nonetheless, this tradition... Um, has become ingrained in, in the culture mm-hmm. that the the Christmas Eve dish is Kentucky Fried Chicken.
0: Really? Yeah.
1: I, I found that out researching my Fried Chicken chapter and,
0: okay. I mean, and Colonel Sanders, I mean, starting the drive-thru, theoretically. Hey, kicking off you Wendy's, you know. Uh, what, is, what is the history of, if you know? One of, of my what? favorites, fried chicken and, chicken and waffles. Fried chicken and waffles? Fried chicken and waffles. Yeah, there's,
1: there are a number of competing points of view on that. Again, we mm-hmm. talked earlier about what you can prove. Yeah. The, the story generally given is that jazz musicians in Harlem would play until very, very late at night. Um, like the middle of the night into the morning and then would would go out and have fried chicken with that was the dinner half of things and waffles were the breakfast side of things Ah. there there are many people who dispute that and say that fried chicken and waffles were a thing before that and nobody knows how it started i assume you know one day somebody put the two together and it worked Mm
0: -hmm. but
1: the i can't tell you how it happened i can tell you that the way most people claim it happened probably wasn't true, <laughs> which is not to say that jazz musicians didn't go out and have that dish. Yeah. But it, there seems to be a belief that they're not the ones who caused it to be created.
0: I mean, I, I remember being a kid from Montana. I moved down to Southern California and. You we went
1: to Roscoe's.
0: I, I didn't go to Roscoe's. There's two, there's two years of my life that I'm very mad about. And It was mm-hmm. the first two years I was down there. I
1: mm-hmm. never went
0: to a Wahoo's because I didn't understand the idea of having fish in a taco. I thought that mm-hmm. was going to be gross. Kid from mm-hmm. Montana, because my idea of fish is trout, brownies, brookies, you know, pike. I'm not thinking of other, you know, sm- what, what did yeah. you, what did you, my grandpa. I always tell people this. I go, they. I don't know if my parents wanted me around or my grandparents. My grandfather would take me to the ranch at seven, hand me a fishing pole, a tackle box, and a sandwich, on a thousand acre See ranch in a while. Go. There's the river. It's called Deep Creek for a reason. <laughs> Who cares about rattlesnakes, mountain yeah. lions, bears, wolves? Who cares about? Don't any fall of those? in and
1: drown. Thank Don't you. Don't
0: fall in and drown, and I will find you. Don't come find me. And would let me fish all day. And if I caught enough fish, that's what we had. And my grandmother would pan fry it, do you know thick breading, cornmeal. Call it a day. So I missed out on two years of Wahoos. <clears throat> and I know well, Wing, who, who founded Wahoos with his brother. And now every time I'm in SoCal, I eat their food, as voracious as I can, because I, I love their food. And uh, you know the, the same thing goes with Roscoe's. I was told fried chicken and waffles, and I thought everyone was making fun of the hillbilly from Montana, trying to get me to drive up to LA, ask for this thing and get made fun of. For two hey, years. You know,
1: <laughs> but the whole cross-cultural element of food there is a uh, there's a group of historians who believe that the fish taco mm-hmm. using fried fish was actually created in mexico uh, on the coast by visiting uh, i guess they had moved there japanese who brought the concept of tempura to mexican cooking um, you know, so everything's when you start looking at what came from where it's, it's fascinating etymology, it you know, uh, uh, Spanish food, heavily using tomatoes and potatoes.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Those came from the new world. Th- those didn't exist in Europe until, um, well, it's called the Columbian exchange because Columbus opened the door, but there were, you know, successive waves of explorers and, uh, Those were among the items brought back to Europe. European venereal disease and other diseases were among the items brought to the new world.
0: Yeah. It wasn't a very fair trade. Uh, you know, I prefer prefer tomatoes. Yeah. I prefer tomatoes as well. And it's also, it's fascinating, you know, speaking of the, the trade of food and where things went, I mean, you want great Indian food, you go to London. Yes. Well, but understand something.
1: Um, the the um that was all the result of um the uk's colonialism mm-hmm. back in the day and the number of people they had posted to india and it's also the reason uh, people drink ipa yes. ipa was invented because extra hops helped preserve the beer on the long boat ride to india yeah. And I'm not an IPA fan, but hey,
0: I'm, a, I'm a all across outside of the mainstays, Bud Miller Coors. I'm an all. However, at the horny toad, I, you know, I'm sitting around these guys. I'm not ordering some fancy IPA. I looked right in the, I said, Smokey in the band at me. And the kid looked at me, the bartender he goes, I don't get it. And every old timer around that bar goes, good Lord, give that kid a yellow belly and and he's still confused and finally you just hear someone out of the back corner go he wants a curse. <laughs> like...
1: you know when i went to college in oklahoma you still couldn't get cores east of the rockies that's right so it was a prized item for me to bring home it was only later that i realized i hate cores <laughs> um, I-
0: yeah, I, I only like Coors in certain situations, if, because it reminds me it's the You can like whatever
1: can. you like, you don't have to yeah. defend yourself oh, no. for liking Coors. I, I did a series after diners, we syndicated a series on craft beer. And I, I learned a lot about beer. And at the end of that series, all about craft beer, I realized that my favorite beer remained what it was going in. The Budweiser Budavici or Pilsner Urquell that I used to find in my hotel refrigerator when I went to Czechoslovakia, which is now the Czech Republic. And you, you give me one of those and I'm a happy guy. I, uh,
0: I, I, I'm, I'm situational on beer. Hey, yeah, as if, a, if as, you're as, as a thirsty, kid that's up, a
1: situation to drink. Yeah, in.
0: that's true too. But as a kid growing up, like if I wanna be nostalgic, I'm gonna grab a course because it reminds me of fried chicken and Kino at the chicken shack in Helena, Montana with my dad, where he would give me a keynote card and $5, and that's how I gambled to make my money. Yeah, well,
1: see, food sense memories are the strongest of all memories, because they give you something highly tangible to remember. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm going to talk about that in in my presentation on on the book tour. The fact that so much of what happens in life comes back to you through my, my daughter, when she was eight or nine, she's 28 now. Asked me one day, I was talking about some place I'd been, and she said uh, interminably and rather pompously. Um, and she looked up. She said, "Dad, how come every time you talk about a place, you talk about the food?" <laughs> um, and to a great extent, it's because those memories trigger the other memories. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I I was right before the first Gulf War. I was I agreed to go into Baghdad when. He said, uh, self-aggrandizingly, very few people would. And uh, I was there quite a while, and then the government threw me out. And uh, I called the, the Rome Bureau to book my travel. I was living in Frankfurt at the time, and I asked them, listen, I'm fried. I, I haven't had a vegetable in forever. I'm exhausted. Um, I'm dead. Would you mind booking me a stop in Rome at the Hassler Hotel? atop the spanish steps which at the time was considered by many to be the greatest hotel outside of asia in the world um and we could do that back then there was a whole lot of corporate cost cutting in those days so they booked me into um a room in the hassler and i I said to them on the phone i said could you ask them tell them i haven't had a vegetable since whenever and i'd (laughs) appreciate i'd appreciate a room service caprese You know, the tomato, mozzarella, and basil after I check in. So they check me into this nice, not overly large, but gorgeous room on the top floor with a little tiny balcony. And seconds after I'm in the room, there's a knock on the door and a room service waiter comes in with the absolute biggest silver tray I've ever seen in my life. And he sets it down. Maybe it was on a table. I don't know. Anyway, and it's got this huge filigree dome and he pulls it off. And there's more caprese there than i've ever seen in my life there must have been 30 pieces and i said to myself there's no way i can eat this and then i went and ate it all and i had tomato juice from these incredible italian tomatoes just rolling down my face and the mozzarella was you could still feel the cow or the buffalo i don't know which kind it was and to this day that sense memory is is rome to me um mm-hmm. everything else stems from it but when you say rome i think caprese
0: it's weird because when you say tomatoes i think greece because i was in i was in greece and i was eating them like apples yes yeah. the, the sweetness the fullness mm-hmm. of the flavor yep. the sun, was a tomato i'd never had before in my life i'd never tasted anything like because
1: that because they haven't genetically engineered them to be round and durable for shipping That's what has happened to the American tomato. It's been bred, not for flavor, but for durability. I live in Jersey where every summer for a brief period of time, honest to God, ugly, misshapen Jersey tomatoes become available, and they're the best on earth. Alice Waters admits that. Um, But the rest of the year, because we insist on having every seasonal food available to us at all times throughout the rest of the year, people eat crappy tomatoes. I'll tell you in Spain, one of the finest dishes in the world is they toast a piece of of bread, you know, not white bread, but European style bread. They cut a tomato in half and they rub it across the surface of the bread. And it all just kind of pulps in there. And then they top it with a little salt and olive oil and it's to die for.
0: Sounds delicious. Mm. I mean, what, when the wife and I, we had our, uh, our wedding and our honeymoon in, in Thailand. Nice. And to your point on food, uh, when I felt bad because we'd go to these places and they see two Americans like, would you like a steak? You know, and it's the most no. expensive thing on the meal. And I'm, and I'm back in the Kosoi ga, this spicy yeah. stew with chunks of chicken yeah. in there and big yeah. mustard leaves. And like this place, like that's a dollar. And I'm just like, God, I'm going to tip you 20. I don't care. Yeah, I'm here for the, yeah. I'm here for the food and, Trying different things. we went through this uh, one area. We're in this little open market, and I see this gal. And she's selling stuff. And I kind of look over. It kind of seems weird. A wall behind her just guinea pigs, and then next to her is a bundle of sticks, and then there's a fryer. And you would pick your guinea pig, she would snap that neck, cut it, gut it, and skin it in maybe 10 seconds. Shove that yeah. poker right along the spine, roll it in panko, throw it in the fryer. Next thing you know, got a corn dog, a guinea pig corn oh. dog, pretty much. Oh, they crickets being tossed in basil and lemongrass and just tossed and the aromas and the smells. Yeah, that whole that's thing, food. That's food. And it's just we had one day where we made and I, I, I joke with her. I go, this is the one day we made a mistake. We just I needed a little different texture. And we saw on Koh Samui, one of the islands, we saw this pizza joint. It's so hilarious. So we grow in there and I'm forgetting they're not going to have cheese there because it's the islands. There's not, it's, it's not a good place to make cheese, right. but you know, I get a cold beer and we just, we like just a cheese pizza, please. And the guy's like, okay. And he walks in the back, brings out our beers. And you see that I have a perfect view of the kitchen. There's nothing happening. 10 minutes later, I see a little moped pull up. Guy pulls a frozen pizza out of the back, puts it in the microwave. Right next to the front door then walks outside and around to the kitchen they sort some of flour down on, on one of the wooden things you pull the pizza with and then walk up to the table like nothing happened and they're like here's your fresh made pizza it's not sauce it's ketchup it's not cheese it's tofu-esque cheese style stuff and it was microwaved but there are I,
1: things not to order
0: there are things not to order but guess what even in things not to order the memory of that brings a smile of to my course. face because. Of course. You know, it was well, just it fun. fun.
1: One of the things people don't learn, I mean, clearly you understand it, is to eat what comes from there. Mm-hmm. I live on Long Beach Island, which is a barrier island off the coast, coast of Jersey. We still have a small commercial fishing port at, at the tip of the island, which brings in incredible seafood. Uh, monkfish, tilefish in the, uh, in August tuna and eternally all year round, the finest scallops I've ever tasted in my life. And then during tourist season, if you're in a restaurant, you see tourists eating fried shrimp, not scallops, not to nothing local. I mean, the shrimp came from Indonesia. It's frozen. And if it was any good, you've just killed it by frying it. Mm-hmm. And- eat, when I go someplace, I find out ahead of time, what do they harvest there? What do
0: they specialize in?
1: And that's what I want to try.
0: Yeah. That's it. No, I'm, I'm with you. One of my, I used to live in Seattle and I could get a, a, uh, a loaf of sourdough, Tabasco, butter, and mussels, mm-hmm. rip off a piece of that sourdough grip out, just run it through the, the, the buttery, run it through there, drop the scallop on, scallop on top, a couple of shakes of Tabasco. Pop, I mean,
1: that's, that's how you
0: eat. That's how you eat. And it's, be, you know, and there's, there's certain things. I mean, we used to, I always joke around about this, but it's, you know, it's, it's not known for these things, but you, then you find a little hole in the walls the fun little spots where, you know, a transplant has come in and they've just made it their own. And you just fall in love with it or you don't, but you try it and you go after it and you just have a better yeah, view. Try it. Just got to try it. Try it. Just, you got it. You got to go after it. We go into restaurants. I'll, always, I'll see things I think I like. Drives mm-hmm. my wife crazy. I look at the waitress. I'm like, listen, I'm thinking about these three things. Are they good choices? You know, if you get an honest one, they be like, mm, probably this one. You Make it sound like I think they're all good choices. But I look at it. I'm like, all right, well, surprise me you pick don't tell me something yeah bring me something awesome thank you yeah yeah and they're always the best meals. i had one gal bring me meatloaf i wouldn't order meatloaf to save my i'm not ordering meatloaf she brought me out meatloaf something i haven't had since i was a kid it was like meatloaf and liver were the two things i was like as a kid oh
1: Oh, they're great both of them
0: now as an adult i love them but i was just like okay i guess i'm having meatloaf it's funny you say that It was so, so good.
1: You got, you got to go. I had, you're familiar, obviously, with the great writer, Calvin Trillin, who did so much about American food. Yes. I was lucky enough to have lunch with him. To talk a bit before my, my book. And we sat down in a restaurant in his neighborhood, and he ordered the turkey meatloaf. I'm thinking to myself, okay, maybe he knows something. He said <laughs> it was great. Who knows? You who know, knows? it's funny though. My, my wife and daughter and I were on a trip to Hong Kong. And we wanted to eat locals, so I finally got the concierge at the hotel to explain to me where the locals you know what street where where you would go. so we walk downstairs into this cavernous restaurant where nobody's speaking English. nobody takes any notice of it. It's not like someone takes you to a table, so we find some spots at a communal table, and we 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 get oriented pretty quickly it's waiter waitresses I guess walking around with dim sum baskets and you just call one over and you pick stuff. And we're having a great meal until one of the waitresses comes over and opens the basket and an elderly, um, local guy sitting one table over who hasn't said a word to us suddenly pops up in English. And he says, and I quote, that not for you. (laughs) And so of course I had to try it. It was duck foot, you know, no Mm -hmm. taste. A lot of texture, and there you go. But that not for you.
0: That's not for I. Uh, I dated this gal who was Korean, and I i remember I, we went to a traditional Korean restaurant in Koreatown outside of LA. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I'll try anything. I'm I'm in. I'm a hundred percent in. And I, her grandmother's like tapping her and talking to her. And I don't understand what's going on. I'm I'm like, this is spicy. I love it. Okay, this cool mm-hmm. texture. This is interesting. And she and they're laughing and kind of talking. And I looked at, I said, Alice, what are they, what are they talking about? He's like, Oh, my family's amazed. You eat like a Korean.
1: <laughs> what better compliment?
0: I was like, ah, thank you. Like when can we come back? This is amazing food.
1: That's an incredible cuisine. It really is. That, that, that is an incredible cuisine.
0: It, yeah. It's, it, I don't think it gets the love that it deserves.
1: For it sure. doesn't. And, and it's not as, as widespread as it is. Uh, I made a distinction in the book between what is American cuisine and what is not.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I, I, my dividing line was foods available everywhere that are um, a virtually unconscious choice at lunch. When you think, what should I have? There's a, there's a menu that includes sushi Uh, and Chinese food, and hamburgers, and things, but it doesn't include Korean, it doesn't include Vietnamese, it doesn't include um, Peruvian, which writers and chefs have been trying to get us to love, and I do, for a long time. It's funny what crosses over, and what does not.
0: Yeah, it's great, because you're absolutely right, Peruvian food is delicious.
1: Oh, but, but again, any culture whose signature dish is um, is beef heart is probably not going to get a whole lot of love from America.
0: True. I remember the first time I had a uh, venison heart tartare <sighs> with a spicy pesto on the How side. Was it? it was delicious. But I went to this place and it's, uh, what's the name of the place? Ford and Domestic. And I it. Mm-hmm. It was a brand new restaurant, opened up. I had met the owner and head chef mm-hmm. and I always just, I said, Hey man, you got a lot of really interesting food here. Just let me know what, uh, what I should have. And he goes, well, what did you want to order? And I said, I thought I was going to order a couple of these things. He goes, well, those don't really go together as far. I mean, they're both good, but you got this appetizer. It's, you're not going to have a good flow.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Let me help you out. Okay. I'm in whatever you would like. I'm excited about this. And it was amazing. It was absolutely amazing. And, and stuff I just wouldn't order, you know, because I just, it doesn't, it doesn't pop out at me like, oh, you should definitely go grab this, especially in your little restaurant in Austin, Texas. So instead, you just got to embrace it and run after it and just decide what you want to get into. And it was amazing. It was absolutely amazing. and I mean, wife and I've gone there a couple of times and you sit down and I'll order some stuff and they will get this smile from him and new food shows up it's like no No, but see that's that's how to do it It, it's I was
1: taken to a large food hall in Flushing Queens which was um oriented entirely toward uh, Chinese immigrants it was not selling food for um white Americans and I was taken from stall to stall by a couple of young uh, Chinese, well, a couple. And, um, I ended up eating some things that, uh, I probably wouldn't have ordered on my own. Were I not there to explore like, um, um, a disc of, uh, duck blood or soup with tendon. Um, it was phenomenal. It was yeah. just, you know, it, it's, you got, would I prefer that they had named the duck blood something else? Sure. But it was great, man. It was great.
0: <laughs> yeah. That's that happened with us in Thailand. And I remember the first time we went there, I told them I, was, I we were staying at this place and I said, Hey, I like it hot. Like, oh boy. Okay. Well, they brought it out, and I was like, you guys, I really, I like it hot. And the chef's like, I'm like, hmm. I'm, like I'm here for a week. It was okay. Day one, day two. I like it hot. And I'm like, you guys, I really, I'm not white guy hot. I want it Thai Mm -hmm. hot. And chef, I want it your Thai hot. Right. Next day comes, get it. The top of my head sweating. I got sweat coming down my ears. He and the staff got their head hooked around the corner. They're like, uh, is he alive? And I've got the biggest smile on my face because however they do their broth you know it's kind of like the, the the ramen you know in right. japan this 10 years to make this perfect broth and then it's the base for the perfect broth moving forward however they do that the levels of flavor and that they can have spice that will blow the roof off your mouth and you can still taste the lemongrass you yeah can but still taste the key. chicken.
1: no that's the key heat that obscures flavor is wrong Yep, heat that emphasizes flavor is right mm-hmm. in fact that should be engraved on the supreme court
0: <laughs> that that should be another amendment because it's yeah, true well
1: we could use a few more we,
0: we absolutely but it's it's true and it's so it's interesting there's one other thing i wanted to bring up with you because i uh, as we're watching a movie here austin has become famous or you know for a lot of things but one is the alamo draft house and the alamo not, not unique to this, but one of the, the leaders in this, kicking it mm-hmm. off, was serving at the theater really good food and drinks
1: mm-hmm. while
0: you watched your movie. Right. And now there are purists who would always say, well, you're taking away from the food or you're taking away from the movie. No, oh, you're enjoying an experience. That's, thank you, that's my thing. And it's interesting because I don't know if the food would be as good by itself but I do know in that environment, when you sit down and you know someone's going to bring you something, you're like, you know what? I'm watching a movie. I want to want a boozy milkshake and a burger. And it's the best boozy milkshake and burger because I can't get it anywhere else. Right. And I definitely can't get this combo while I'm watching whatever movie is here to distract me and take me away or make me think about the world differently.
1: I love it. Yeah. No, it's food is an experience. Food is part of an experience. Um, It's and it is to be enjoyed, you know, um, all of this. I'm sure that if I ate less red meat, I'd live a year longer, but it would be a crappy year.
0: (laughs) You know, what they say for, for a month, I quit, you know, sugar and alcohol and carbs. And I lost a, a month.
1: (laughs) It's exactly correct. That's what I lost. Exactly correct.
0: You know, that's exactly what I lost. Well, Well, it's, it's like Warren's, did you
1: you ever seen the video of Warren Zevon's final appearance as he was suffering terminal cancer on the Letterman show?
0: I did not know.
1: Okay he's one of my favorite musicians of all time and uh Letterman said to him and it was you know they were open about the fact that he was going to die soon and Letterman said to him well Warren after all these years what have you learned and he looked over he said Dave enjoy every sandwich
0: <laughs> I like that yeah don't don't make I think that's a you know don't enjoy make every prime. sandwich Don't make food crime and punishment. No,
1: it's, uh, yes, we should all be as healthy as we can be, but good God, if, if, if you want fried chicken now and then have fried chicken,
0: Yeah. but make it
1: good fried chicken. Exactly. It's, you know, there's, there's nothing, there's nothing more wasteful of your time or calories than eating crappy food. Yeah. And by the way, I'm I'm not one of those like anti-fast food purists, um, when I go to California to work, there's a good chance I will eat it in and out three or four nights in a row. That's life, you know, I'll pay for it. When I get back, I'll walk a little longer, but eat good food.
0: But there's also the purity of simplicity, you know, in and out's got sure. a thing and I love them for it. Was like, This is what we do. Burger. Yeah. Well, do you, yeah. we got a burger champ. That's what we got. We got a, And you can have two patties.
1: I'm going to have one or 12.
0: or 12. You get cheese, no cheese. After that, you're really on the fringe.
1: Well, animal sauce,
0: animal sauce. Yeah. yeah but it, that's it. That's, 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 that's,
1: that's and the it's, dance. And they do it really well. It's like, um, it's like the beauty of a diner. You know what you're going to get mm-hmm. and the chances are very good. It's going to be good. Yeah. You cannot screw up breakfast at a diner. It's just, it's what you do. You know, I want coffee in a thick cup and then I want something with hash browns. That's, that's pretty much it. We, you know, um, just, and, and that's one of the food things that's important, which is identifying your lane and staying there. Mm -hmm. Um, make what you're good at, allow your customers to expect it and keep doing it right.
0: Absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more, you know, and it's, uh, this is, this is, first of all, it's been fascinating. Uh, David, uh, I like to say this and uh, it amazes me, you know, as, as we sit down and we talk and exchange a couple emails and you, you agreed to do this, the one thing in life, you know, we can go to the store and buy those pesky avocados and they're never ripe on time. And, it's, but guess what? Go buy some more avocados. You right. go buy bread, it gets moldy. You buy some more bread. Mm-hmm. Time is the one thing we we, we never get back, and uh, mm-hmm. it's always an honor to me that someone who doesn't know me from Adam would uh would take the time in this crazy format to uh, to spend it with me and share their knowledge with me and their insights and their thoughts, and I I, I can't thank you enough for that. I really do mean that. Thank well,
1: you. thank you for inviting me. Um, you're clearly um. An intelligent guy with a wide range of interests. Why would I not enjoy talking with you? And you caused me to rewatch um, Vertigo, which is hey. one of my favorite movies. So thank you. Even if you know a movie that well, there were a million things I saw in it yesterday that I had forgotten I loved. So thank you.
0: Well, I appreciate that. Thank you very much. One more time your book, Where People Can Get It, it's, uh, it's... and your website so that they can Thanks. find out where uh, it, see ya.
1: Food Americana on Facebook, Food Americana on Insta uh Instagram, Instagram. Uh and you can get it pretty much at any online retailer, Amazon, Target, Barnes and Noble, uh Walmart, I think. Yeah. Um and um uh there's one more that has escaped me, but uh those are plenty. Um and as I said, Uh, My daughter's still in grad school, so buy a
0: bunch. Buy a bunch. (laughs) I like it. Well, David, thank you so much, folks. Now's the time, uh, your favorite time. And my daughter sings about the first time she dropped a deuce by herself. (laughs) Enjoy, party people. Enjoy. Thank okay.